Okay. So, like I said, the topic is on the sanctuary, and then it will be on the service. So the rubric or the structure of the service and, and what we can do. But for us to be on the same page, what I want to do is make sure we have the same nomenclature. So the same names for everything that we're calling and referring to things by their names uh, in, in this way so that we can all be on the same page. One of the problems with having a multi-purpose room, which is what we had for, uh, design had 15 years, but I, uh, since I've been a pastor eight and a half years, is the, the problem is that there's nothing that's clear or separate. So it, it all flows as one. It's just one big thing. And so it's hard to talk about a chancel or it's hard to talk about a, uh, the, the, the narthex. Uh, I'm, in fact, you can probably notice during the announcements, I'm so used to saying back of the church that I don't say narthex now, and it's, it's, a tr- it's troubling. Because I'm used to just having one big room, and it's okay in the back, but this is a separate place, there's the narthex. So, with that being said, what I wanted to start out with is that just the terminology uh, that we are speaking of things in the same way. So, the, the first is the word church, uh, which is German, uh, it's coming from the German word kirche, and it means church, ta-da. <laughs> Uh, there's not much to it. But the, the Greek is Kyriake. And it's a combination of two words. Kyrios, which means what? Lord. Yeah, the, the, the Kyrie eleison. Uh, Lord have mercy upon us. That's the, the Latin name. Kyrie and then eleison is mercy. So Kyrie and then oikos, which means what? Sorry? House. Yes, like economy. That's where you get the word economy from. So it's a house. So you put those together, what do you have? The Lord's house. This is his place. So that's what the word uh, church means. It's the Lord's house, his place where he dwells. Um, it means the house of the Lord. So it could refer to the whole thing, the, the entire structure. Um, the other word is assembly or congregation. So... Uh, these don't have very clear kind of etymologies, but the Greek word ecclesia, uh, like if you, if you speak Spanish, what do you call the church in Spanish? Iglesia, right? Iglesia, very close to ecclesia, right? Um, ecclesia, which means ek, uh, or ek is, ek is out of, and then uh, kaleo means, what do you think? Called. Yeah, so the ecclesia, or the congregation, or that's just a group of people, or the assembly, we don't have a really good translation of ecclesia in English. In Spanish, it's beautiful, it's perfect, and Portuguese too, but not in English. In English, we don't get that, so we kind of lose it. But what that means is it's a group of people called out of the world. So we're called out from the world, and we're here together in, in one group. There is the, also the word parish. <clears throat> uh, para, para, it means near. And uh, oikos is house. Uh, again, this is the, the Greek terminology here. And that means you're near the house. That's what a parish means. You're near the house. Uh, which doesn't make all too much sense. But the way it's used in the language is that it is sojourner or traveler, or visitor. 
So why do you think a parish or a church is called a parish? What do you think? Sojourners. Because this isn't our home, right? The world isn't our home. We're a bunch of people who are not supposed to be here forever, right? We're people who have a home in the heavens with the Lord. That's where we're supposed to be. And so the parish is the group of people who are sojourners in this world. We're just passing through it. Uh, The Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth, but we're here for a, a, a brief time. So the, the parish is uh, referred to as, the, the parish is a group of sojourners or travelers where the world isn't their home. And one person in that group is called a parishioner. So you can hear this, we can pray for the parish and the parishioners, which you are the, the, the travelers in this life. Uh, the other word is narthex. So now we're getting to the specifics of the building. So we can use the word church, assembly, congregation, parish, so on and so forth. Um, but narthex, now we're talking about the architecture and the enclosed spaces. So the narthex is, comes from Greek. It's from a, it refers to a, a certain type of plant. It's called a giant fennel. Do you guys know what this is? No, me either. I had to Google it. So apparently there's like a, a stem or something that connects it. And that's, that's what it's referring to. So this is a stem from like the outside uh, 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 joining to the inside here. So that's one of the ideas. The other meaning is scourge, which is very weird too. But um, anyway, these are the two meanings of the word. So I don't know. I don't really know all of the details of narthex. But it's a word that's stuck. And it is the main entrance of the building, and it's always supposed to be opposite of the, 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 the altar. So wherever the altar is, it's the, on the other side. Now, to, nowadays, the narthex is the main entrance of the church. That's what we call it, kind of the greeting and welcoming area before you come into the church. But traditionally, do you know what the narthex was, was used for? Sorry? <laughs> the ex- yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what else? Baptism? Not quite. They, they usually put the uh, baptismal font out there. And, and that's true. They, do, they typically will have that there. But who was it for? And what was it used for? What do you think? Yes. Yep. Yeah, so that was for the uncatechized, the, those who were not learned, those who didn't know the scriptures. And they were learning it, but they were back there. Also, the excommunicated, those who, are, who have committed grievous sins that have, and they're impenitent. It's not, it's not simply the sin, it's the impenitence with it. They were back there. And they were held there, and they could not enter the church proper. Right, the, the, the sanctuary. And there was a, a reason for that. Um, I think in the old liturgy, they used to say, that the priest used to say, during the, the service of the sacrament, he would say, the holy things for the holy people. For the, the holy things for the holy people of God. That is, don't take what is holy, don't take the pearls and throw it to the pigs. That's just the Bible. That's Jesus who said that. 
Um, and we're, we're saying, look, this is the very body and blood of Christ. We're not going to give it to people who don't know or care what it is or who have sinned against it and trample it. So there was a physical division in the churches, in the narthex, of those who wanted to come and listen. Good, that's great. And then there were those who were catechized, who went through the word of, uh, who went through instruction and were joined and incorporated. Uh, the very word incorporate, in is, uh, is together with, and corpus is body. So they were joined together in the body of, of Christ in this way. But the, the narthex was traditionally used for that. Yeah. Well, well, they were. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They were. They were taught, um, right? That they, they had a very high respect and reverence for the things of God, and that um, kind of an outsider coming up to the Lord's Supper. From, from the outside with no connection to the church or whatever would have been one of the most offensive things to the early church. And one of the reasons is because there was so much persecution. So people would come in and they would heckle or they would cause problems or they would hear what they're saying, go tell everybody else, look, these people are crazy. They think they're eating the body and blood of Jesus. Man, these people are nuts. And there was a lot of persecution. So the early church had to take precautions in this way to say, well, who's, who's genuinely here to hear the word of God? And who's serious about it? And who's just here for, for fun, right? And if, you're, if, you're not, if we don't know you, you could be our persecutor, right? You could be anybody. So you're, you're in the back. And so that, that was a separate part. So there was logic into it. And it wasn't just kind of a, a holier-than-thou mentality. But it was that they had great and deep reverence, profound reverence for the things of God. And it just was unthinkable that they would, that this would be offered to the world, right? So, sorry? Oh, children, that's a good question. I don't know. I would imagine that they were in the back, too. Um, But I'm not entirely sure, so I can't tell you. I'll, I'll look into that, so... That's good. It, it probably depends on the ages as well of those children. You know, baby, you can't leave in the, in the narthex. But, um, <laughs> but uh, especially with all the kids running around. But, you know, maybe once, once they're, you know, have some reason, maybe the age of seven or something, and they were uncatechized, they were probably back there. This is also an argument for uh, early communion. Not infant communion. We're not communion infants, but that as soon as the child can make a confession of faith, that they can then, uh, once they know the catechism and can repeat it word for word, uh, uh, you know, you shall have no other gods before my face. What does this mean? You shall fear, love, and trust in God above all things, so on and so forth. Uh, Once they're able to do that, then they would be received into uh, communion or fellowship. And then confirmation was sort of like a secondary after Something that came later. And that, and that means the confirmation was a lot more robust and, and thorough as opposed to just something quickly get them to commune because they're 13 now or something. So anyway, all, all of those are, are good practices and, and things that we may consider in the future. Not the narthex part. I, it's not the case anymore today. But um, this, is, this is how it is. Yeah.
Yeah, that's a good question. So they, they did meet in the homes, and they would have a separate part of the home to meet in for very, very early. So this would be like Acts uh, and, and a little bit later. Uh, then they, the history of the architecture, I'm not entirely sure of. So it, it does develop over time. But even in those house churches, they didn't let people in who they didn't know. So they're like, this is my home. You can't come in here, right? I don't know you. You're just a stranger. Now, if you're interested, we can teach you. Of course we can. But there has to be some, you have to have some skin in the game to learn to say, hey, what am I, uh, what, what are you doing here, essentially? So, but the history of the architecture, I'm not quite sure when these things started to come about. But it's, it's not that late, um, or, or it's not a recent innovation. This is something that's been in church history for quite a long time. That they've had separate parts. Um, yeah. So this idea that those we don't know would be separate from the sanctuary and the holy works flies would that fly in the face of modern ideas that we need to make the church welcoming to outsiders and make it look attractive to them? Yeah. Yeah. It it, it does. It does. Um, this idea of like kind of a hospitality of the church. I mean, in, in, in the wrong sense of it, right? The, her, the church is to be hospitable or to be nice to the strangers and outsiders, of course. But uh, this idea of open communion is, is just foreign to the entire church history. It's just not a thing. There's, there's just no way. Um, the, the idea of having different denominations. I mean, there weren't things called denominations in the New Testament. It was just heresy, it was false doctrine. They're just divisions in the church. So that when, when someone is teaching wrongly about Christ, we don't say, oh, well, that's the Seventh-day Adventist or that's the Mormons. It's just they're false teachers, just flat out. They departed from the scriptures and that's it. So th- their guideline, right, their in- guideline of inclusion was the scriptures themselves. But this, this was the idea, right, this idea of, of sort of let's have everyone feel welcome. I mean, that's really an American sort of thing. It's kind of like, um, what is it called? Yeah, hospitality or, what's the word? Customer service. Yeah, that, it's, that's, that's the thing that's kind of dominated our church's thinking is we got to be, you know, learn from customer service to, to make people feel welcome in this way. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then, uh, with regard to when the church began to expand, was uh, uh, following Constantine and uh, Christianity now being a free legal. Yeah. Okay. And so the syllabus began to. Um, so, about the 5th, 6th century, when the church started to emerge. That's good. Yes, Constantine does change things quite a bit for Christians, uh, that it's not illegal to be a Christian. And so that means we can express ourselves. We don't have to go into hiding into a church. Now I can build something that looks like a church and people know we're Christians and they're not going to set it on fire, right? Because that would be illegal. So, yeah. Steve. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a pretty good DVD study. Oh, I don't know. 
what it's called. I think it's by Dr. Just. Do you remember the name? Yeah. website that you go on to get it. I forgot the name. Um, I'll see if I could send it to, to you guys. There's, it's like a four-part series or something. And it's very good because a lot of times we think that the early church was just disorganized. Well, they were disorganized in, in many ways, but that they had no idea where to start or how to conduct the service. And that's not true. They actually had the service, a service to go off of and, and with them. Uh, one of the differences is that the lectionary was different because you couldn't afford, I mean, there weren't books, you had scrolls. And you had, it was about $30,000 to get one of these scrolls of the New Testament, so they would pass them around. What they would do for the reading is they would read the entire epistle, or the entire gospel. And you would have it for maybe, I don't know, a week or two, and they would gather every day, and he would just read the entire, <laughs> the entire gospel, you know, and the services were three, four, five hours however long it took to read. And the congregation would soak it up as much as possible before they had to pass it on. But in order, for, so the churches were poor. In order for them to actually have one of the epistles to get a copy of it was very expensive. You don't have those sort of uh, materials with you and it's not common to write, so on and so forth. So, so all of this sort of stuff, you know, starts to come together. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that um, in, under Constantine, things change quite a bit, and this is where the idea of church structure and architecture starts to come together. And we say, okay, we can build something, and we don't have to meet in somebody's house, and we can make a house for God, right? So, so that's, the, that's the idea of the narthex. Um, but the point was that they practiced closed communion, even then. And in fact, why is it called, that's where we get the name closed communion, because they would close the door. The doors were closed with a D, uh, in the back, and they said, you can't come in here. Um, all, all it's saying is that this is the Lord's Supper. It is for those who believe, teach, and confess this. Now, I, again, I think that morphed into something uh, later where there was a separation in the church between, or in the service, between the service of the Word and the service of the sacrament. And the service of the Word goes up to the prayers of the church. So after the sermon then everybody who is not a member would be, uh, you know, escorted out. You, you'd go out. And then those who were of the church, they would remain for the Lord's Supper. Right? And that's historical. That's just throughout, throughout all time. Um, okay, so that's the narthex. Then we have the nave. The nave comes from Latin navis, or navis which means ship. And the nave is this thing, where, where you are right now. You're sitting in the nave. Um, this is the, the body of the church where the congregation members sit. Um, the reason it was called nave, it's where we get the word navigation from, is because it was built to look like a ship. Right? And that this is the ship that's going towards 
heaven, going towards uh, our home, our future home. We're just traveling for the moment, and we're going there. So the, the way it's built is like an upside-down ship. So if you flip this whole thing over, uh, then this would be the bottom in the, in the sea, right? So that's coming from the idea of Noah's Ark, uh, that the church is sort of a Noah's Ark, that there's destruction and there is a ca- ca- uh, calamity out in the world, but this is what will keep you safe. Uh, coming into the Ark of God's church, he'll keep you safe from the flood. God has promised never to flood the earth again with water. That's true. But what? He did say he would flood the earth again with fire. Yeah. A day is coming, the day of the Lord, when he will flood this world with fire. Read First and Second Thessalonians on that. Um, the, the world will be flooded with fire. Uh, but we will be preserved those who are in the church. And so this was the idea of this, that there's another flood coming and we've built another ark, but here we are in this, safe in this ark. Uh, the, the other word is transept, and that's this. So these wings, what you would call them. Uh, trans means beyond or um, across, and sept or septum, like if you have a deviated septum, is like a, the uh, a partition or a wall. So that this would be the, the, the wall or the partition that goes across the church. And what this is, is, is it's a, I'll get to this in a, in a moment, the cruciform sort of ground plan, but that's what these wings are called. So we don't want to call them wings of the church, we'll call them transepts, that's what they are. Uh, and they're supposed to be the arms of the cross, and we'll, I'll explain that. Um, let's see. The sanctuary, okay, so sanctuary, we usually refer to the whole thing. Like, so that's a, an umbrella term for everything. But really, in antiquity, the word sanctuary meant this, this part. This is the holy place, sanctus, uh, holy, holy, holy. So this is the, the place that's set apart, and it, it's, it's the gathering of saints. So this is a holy place because... The saints, only the saints, the sanctified, come up and come to this area, right? So from here, from this first step on, this would technically or traditionally be called the sanctuary. And this is the nave and transept, right? But nowadays, the word has morphed into this whole thing is a sanctuary because this is where all the saints are, okay? Um, But I'm just kind of telling you the history of this. And then there's the chancel. in Latin, it's cancellus, or uh, yeah, cancellus, which is lattice, so it means a fence. And what churches would do, they would have the, the icons or iconostasis, which was a wall, and that would separate the very holy place behind it from the common place before it. Uh, now, you know, in, in Lutheran architecture, they don't have the iconostasis, right? If you go to Greek Orthodox churches, you'll see like they have their own closet in the back, and that's where the altar is. That's the iconostasis, right? Dividing all. But in Lutheran churches, we have a, an altar rail, and that then is the line of demarcation saying, here is the chancel, or the separate part of the sanctuary from the common place, right? So, all these terms are helpful because they, they help you realize what 
is going on here. Right? Last week we talked about the durability, the materials that we use to build the, 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 the church. But now we're talking about the different parts of it and, and what they mean. Um, going back to the cruciform ground plan. So if you had a drone or, a, or you were on a helicopter and you go right above the church, you would look down on it and then you'd see a cross. Right? Just looking at this part. And that's how this is built, so that this looks like a cross. Uh, this was Western European tradition to have a long nave. This part was very long. And then a transept here, so that you wouldn't make the form of a Latin cross. Uh, by the way, do you guys know the difference between a Latin and a Greek cross? So Latin cross is like this, uh, long, or long top to bottom and short on the sides. And then that, yeah. Uh, what's on the pulpit is a Greek cross, and where it's, where it's uh, uniform, so that the top and bottom are the same, and the left and right are the same. So that, uh, there's a difference there, and there's a reason for that, which I'll get to once we talk about the pulpit, too. But what I want to talk about is why did the churches build in a cruciform shape? And it's actually beautiful. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, if you have your Bible. Twelve through thirty-one. I'll read this section. There's a lot of stuff in here, but just uh, pay attention. For just as the body is one and has many members, that so the the word members here is like members of a body, uh, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and, or Greeks, slaves or free, all, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the idea here is that, that there's many, and then they're all united in one. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Right? So you, you have feet that act differently than your ears, and they have different purposes in your hands and elbows and so on and so forth. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So the, the eyes are one of the weakest parts of the body, and yet they're the most necessary, right? Uh, you can see through them. Um, and on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So that the, the greater the modesty, the more important the thing is. This is important when it comes to dress and clothing in church, too. Um, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, 
that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, here it is, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, as teachers of theology, not just teachers of history or colors or something, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. That's languages. Are all apostles? This is anticipating a negative response. No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues and different languages? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes on and talks about love. And that the chief thing of the church, the chief marker of the Christian, is that he loves his brother. That you love one another. That's the, that's the marker of it. Uh, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's Monday, Thursday. That's the new mandate, the new, the new uh, command. But this is why churches were built in this cruciform shape. To say that Christ is the head of the body, and then that all of you are the body parts. The parts of the body. And so it, it, it would make no sense for your left foot to say to the right foot, I don't need you. Or for the eye to say to the ear, I don't need you. Or vice versa. So that all are, we're working together. We're all in the same place. And that just as there's one body, you can only crucify one person at a time. There's one body on the cross. So too the whole church is one body that's in a cross. Right? So th- that, that's, that's how it would be. And it's a remarkable thing. Uh, it's a constant reminder that we ought to be united, that we're not competing against one another. Uh, in fact, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. And uh, we're united in this way precisely because Christ is our head. And if Christ the Lord resurrected from the dead, the head of the church resurrects from the dead, do you think he's going to leave his body in the grave? No. No, so we're united with him in such a profound way, in this way. Okay, so that's why churches are built. Uh, this is where this architecture came from, was, was these texts. Yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a, a lot of this was, came from us. So they, in our initial meeting, we just kind of threw ideas out and said, can you do this? Right. What, what can you, what can you do? And so these different ideas, we just kind of incorporated from other, uh, from other churches that we saw. So yes, this, it was intentional. So everything you see is intentional. I'll put it that way. Um, but, but there was no architect specialized in church architecture, was there? Or was there? Uh, yeah, the uh, McCree designed builders as uh, architect 
Yeah, yeah. So, so they've done that before, which is which is nice. Yeah, and, and the whole building committee put in a bunch of different ideas and and things to to make it look like what it is. Um, yeah, there's there, yeah no yeah it's it's beautiful and I I think the direction we gave was something like we want it to look like it's always been there and we want it to be built like it will always be there. So, so that when you walk in and, and you see this, you say, oh, this must be old. And you say, well, it's actually a month old. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, the, but the idea is that, wow, this is traditional. This is, this is not contemporary. This is not modern. This is following, uh, uh, you know, f- following the old tradition of these sanctuaries and the piety and the reverence that was put into it. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And, and that's, that's my point here with this Bible study, is to kind of point out all of the details of this to show why it's built the way it is and, and why we should be happy with it and proud that we've dedicated this to God. We've given him our first fruits and not just a secondary sort of thing. <laughs> um, real quick, I, I know we have a little bit of time left but I want to talk about the crucifix. I, the reason I want to talk about the crucifix is because the first and most prominent thing you see as you walk into the sanctuary, as you walk into the church. If you walk in, everything is just pointed there. It's, and it's, it's almost distracting. It's almost to the point where you cannot look away. You're just stuck looking up there. I mean, all of, all of the pointed arches, everything is just culminating there. That's the central point. And there's a reason for that. And so what I want to do is go through a few things here. But crucifix comes from two words, crus or cruci, which is cross, and fix us, which is the one fixed to. So the crucifix is that there is one fixed to a cross. That's, that's simply what it means. Uh, the cross we refer to as the wood, and then the corpus is the body. So this is a cross that has a corpus, that has a body on it. Uh, this is the most prominent item in the entire sanctuary. Everything is built around it. Everything leads to it, comes from it, all, all those sort of things. Um, let me ask this. What statement does this large crucifix make to everybody who walks in? <laughs> yeah. I, if, if you, I mean, if you took away the cross, I mean, you would, pr- a lot of people would be able to say, this is a church. But, uh, it, because of the way it's built, and that's wonderful. Um, but when you have the cross there, you can't deny that it's a church. <laughs> uh, you, you can't use this for any other space. Uh, if you have a graduation here or a bar mitzvah <laughs> or some, I don't know, they wouldn't do that. Um, but, <laughs> but if you did that, <laughs> you, you come here, you can't get away from this thing. No matter where you go, wherever, wherever you sit, you're going to see it. I mean, it's huge. It's ten and a half feet, I think a five and a half foot uh, corpus. Uh, it says very clearly, e- even if you take somebody from the Amazon and just drop them in here and say, they're going to say, that seems important. That, that guy, for some reason, I don't know what he did or what's happening, but he seems fairly important to these people. And they'll say, yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you why. Uh, so th- we, we have this crucifix. 
I want to go through a few verses, and then I want to go through the very details of this crucifix and show you how this one is unique from many other ones. Okay, Numbers 21. Verse 8 through 9. Again, remember, this is the bronze serpent. Uh, Israel is complaining. That is, they're grumbling. They're whining. And, and this is the text I showed to my sons. I showed it to Martin, and I said, don't whine. And if you, if you whine, this is what happens. Uh, so he's afraid that snakes are going to get him. So uh, I said, yeah, God, I said, God doesn't like whining. So you don't want. So, and, and the Lord said to Moses, so Israel's groaning and whining in the wilderness. The Lord said to Moses, uh, as, a, as a punishment, he sent fiery serpents to, to, to bring pain and devastation to them. And then he says, um, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Uh, you, you think that any doubt went through Moses' mind. Maybe. Like, how is this going to work? How is it that their pain is going to go away just by looking at this thing? Right? But as he's fashioning it and doing it, and yet he does it, and that's precisely what happens. He didn't depart from the word of God. <laughs> In fact, it says it so beautifully. The Lord said, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And then he did what? He made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Just repeats it. And the healing did not come from the bronze serpent. It came from the word of God. Yes. Exactly. So, exactly. It's not like this was some magical sort of serpent or he used some special bronze or whatever. It was just a reminder of the promise of God that was told to them. And he just said, if you just look at it, then you will live. So you're still going to have the pain. That stuff is going to be burning inside of you. It's going to be fiery and it's awful. But you look at this and you don't have to worry about what? Death. You don't have to worry about dying now because you looked at this. Look at John chapter 3, verse 13. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in the night. And then he says, No one, verse 13, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He was talking about his own crucifixion and that all who would look to him would be saved uh, and saved from death. It's not that their older problems or financial issues are going to go away. It's that they would be saved from death, from the most important thing in their life. Um, they would have the most important thing and saved from the most dangerous thing in their life. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 23 I'll start it. Yeah. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Um, But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Uh, whoever uh, loves his life will uh, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then he talks about, now is my soul troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So what is the purpose of his incarnation? This hour. Uh, What is the purpose of his life, of his miracles, of everything he did in his life? It is that, the cross. That's what he's talking about. Father, glorify your name. So how do we glorify the name of the Father? Is through the death of his son. So, anyway, you can read the context there. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Oh, can you read it? Yeah. Yeah. When, I, when the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That the, that the way the church grows is through... The preaching of the cross. That's it. If you get rid of that, yeah, you can have a full church. But of what? What are you full of? Uh, but those who are, if you want to build the church, you build it through the preaching of the cross. You preach Christ and him crucified. And then the church grows genuinely. And not just externally. Not just with eyes. But it grows in the heart. And it grows in, in, in spirit. Uh, Romans 6 verse 3. Here's a string of texts that, that I have. <clears throat> Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The way he died. Into his death. So that you can't talk about baptism without talking about his death on the cross. Okay. First uh, Corinthians 1. Look at verse 23. But we preach... Christ, what? Crucified. We preach Christ crucified. The content of our preaching, the object of our preaching, the subject of our preaching is Christ and Him crucified. So that you can't get away from not only baptism, but you can't get away from the sermons without hearing about Christ and Him crucified. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2, it says, For I decided, Paul says, to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's life? No, his miracles? No, his death until he comes. You pro- proclaim his, his death until he comes again. Uh, so that you're... you're the point is, the reason the crucifix is in, such, is in such a prominent place, and it's so large, so that you can't sit any, you can't get away from it. You can't sit anywhere in the church and get away from this. Because why? This is central to everything. It's central to baptism, to the preaching, to our knowledge, to our teaching, to the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Look at uh, 1 Peter 1.18.
this is kind of coming in the middle of a sentence, but it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Uh, and then Revelation 5.12 So these are the saints in heaven, and John gets a glimpse of this. So they're saying, holy, holy is the Lord, uh, that, that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll. And then verse 12 says, and they were all saying, all of them were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive uh, he's to, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in it saying these things. So uh, the content of the worship of heaven, of the saints, is they're worshiping what God did in history, something that happened in the world. Uh, the, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And th- this is remarkable and we should the, the reason we did this and had this crucifix in this way is that we would continue to look upon it and gaze upon it and remember these verses so that there's nothing we do that is apart from this it is that central and that crucial to us so a few things i want to point out in the in this before closing at the very top what do you see yes Yes, Inri, right? Um, uh, which is Jesus, uh, what is it? Uh, Nazarenas Rex Judaiorium, which is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That is a historical thing. That is history. Look at John chapter 19. Verses 16, is that right? 16 to 22. Okay, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called, uh, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Here it is. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. What we have here, we have it in Latin. That's because it was the language of the church for so many years. And they could, everybody could pick up some Latin and they knew some Latin. So... That's why historically it's that. But it should be Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. That's historically what's going on there. Um, uh, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I've written, I have written. In Greek, I think that's one one word, gregaptai, which is, I wrote it. 
I'm done. I'm not, don't bother me with this anymore. I've already written what I've written. So, um, th- so that's a historical point. That's why we have that on the top. The I-N-R-I. Jesus of Nazareth, the king, Rex, like Tyrannosaurus Rex, king uh, and Jew- of the Jews. Then you have the hands and feet of Jesus. So you have the five wounds. So you have a wound on his left hand, his right hand, both of his feet, and then you have the wound on his side. And you have that on his, uh, his right side. Remember, when they stabbed the Lord, um, actually, let me read this, chapter 19, John chapter 19, 31 through 34. This is Jesus' side is pierced. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and, since, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, so he's crucified on Friday, they don't want to keep him up for a Sabbath because the Sabbath is a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs would be broken, that they might be taken away. Why would their legs be broken? Is because when they're crucified, in order to take a breath, you have to pull your whole body up and take a breath. Uh, crucifixion, uh, asphyxiation is in the word crucifixion. The way to, that you die on the cross is not by bleeding out. You die by, by uh, asphyxiating. Right? You, you run out of breath. Your, your body's fatigued and it can't take breaths anymore. So what they would do to speed it up, you break the legs and then you can't push up anymore. And then, and then it's only a few hours after that. It's agonizing. So then they said, break their legs so that it might be broken, that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. That's John. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these t- things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him and whom they've pierced. Uh, the fact that Jesus died well before the very next day. I mean, this was an, an agonizing process that took, out, I mean, days. The fact that he died before then, and so quickly, means what? Sorry? Yeah, exactly. That means his uh, flogging and his whipping was extreme, and he had lost a lot of, of blood. He gave it. To, yeah, exactly. That's another thing. So, in Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit as opposed, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down. Yeah. Um, so, so, this wound on the side, so we know the four wounds, but the wound on the side there, you see it depicted, and that is uh, coming from the, the, the spear on the side. It's on this side, so what's happening is it's coming in through the rib and then going here to the heart. And so, when you then rip the spear out, then Blood and water comes out. Um, yeah, which means he was dead and he's emptied himself entirely. Uh, every, every ounce of blood in his body is, is gone at this point. So that too is a historical point to say, look, the Lord's legs weren't broken. He died and the, the scriptures are fulfilled that not one of his bones would be broken. And we will look upon the one whom we've pierced in this way. Okay. 
Now, uh, the, the unique thing is the bent cross. So you see it, and most of the crosses are straight across, right? And this one isn't. This is not... Whoa, Siri. Siri's listening. Okay, um, so, so this is not historical. It's not historical. We, we don't have any reference in the scriptures that the cross of Jesus bowed or bent or whatever. So it's not a historical point. It's actually a theological point. This is teaching theology. The, the reason for the bending is that it's signifying the weight of the sins of the world. That everything is heaped upon Christ and there he is bearing the whole thing. <laughs> uh, that wouldn't happen in, on a real crucifixion. But here the Lord is bearing it. Which means, this is beautiful, that Christ, by looking at the cross, Christ was not on the cross for himself. He was on the cross for you and for the sins of the world. It's amazing. So that in, in one image, without having to say a word, right? Maybe you explain some. But you, you see this, you can pick up a lot of different things. And you can see this weight is bearing this cross down. This has been one of my favorite crucifixes for a long time. Even when we were in the other building, uh, we made little crosses for the altar rail and the pulpit. And we made them bent that way, that it would teach that thing, that very thing. So that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So that it is in the place of the world. First uh, uh, John chapter 2, verse 2 says, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but those of the entire world. So that he's, he's, he's died there and he's bearing the weight. Uh, behold the Lamb of God who... Takes away the sin of the world. The word there in Greek, I preached on this actually this year, so you should remember this. Um, it's not takes, it's who bears, who is now bearing. Behold the Lamb of God who is now bearing the sins of the world. He has them on him, not in him. It's not his, but he, he carried them for us. Uh, okay, one last thing before we close. You see his head crowned with thorns. This is also fulfillment of the scriptures. Um, and I want you to consider one thing. Where is he? Where's his head? Sorry? Yeah, so it's, it's on... It's on uh, but you'll notice that his head isn't directly down. Right? You would imagine if somebody dies, it's not... We don't have any indication in the scriptures, again, that he died with his head to one side or the other. So this, too, is an artistic and theological point. His head, uh, when most of the crucifixes, I don't know, if, I think there are a few that have his head directly down. But the majority of the crucifixes have his head to the right. Why? Sorry? Close. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yes, the the thief on the cross. Yeah. So so what's happening here? Look at Luke chapter twenty three. 
starting at verse 32. Two, other, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Um, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself. Uh, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, um, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And this is the one traditional that is to the left of, of Christ. Um, but the other, on the other side, the right side, rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, uh, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. What is he saying? He's saying, yeah, he's saying what we say every single morning, uh, every single Sunday morning. Um, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, and I deserve both temporal and eternal punishment. Uh, we justly deserve, we're receiving right now the due reward for our deeds, our sins. But this man has done nothing wrong. So he's confessing his own sinfulness, and then he's confessing the innocence of Christ. And he says he's done nothing wrong. And he said, notice, he doesn't say, well, this guy's better than us. He, he did nothing wrong, nothing whatsoever. And Jesus said, um, and he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not even being arrogant here or anything. He just says, remember me, that's all. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be in, with me in paradise. That's beautiful. That's amazing. So when Jesus' head is here leaning to the side, on the right-hand side, uh, it's, a, it, it's a reminder of the thief on the cross that as he's looking to him, uh, he says these final words um, before giving up his spirit and dying. Uh, and so all of those things could be gleaned from this. Yeah.